Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee, and it is a pleasure for me to introduce my next guest, the Executive Director for the Banneker Douglas Museum and the Maryland Commission on African American History and Culture. With a lifelong passion for museums, my guest is committed to amplifying and supporting African American heritage initiatives, groups, and museums in Maryland. And as an artist, she expresses uh, Black diasporic experiences, history, and identity through portraits, abstract paintings, and mosaics. Please welcome Chanel Compton-Johnson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as, as we we get started here again, you know, thank you for for making the time. And uh, and we're recording this in February, and I would imagine um, it's a lot of things that are asked, a lot of times, burn the candle at both ends. But um, for a good purpose, obviously. And um, but yeah, thank you for making that time for this chat. And um, as I go into like this first question, I like to really, I guess what I'm looking for is sort of that that origin story around creativity, around heritage, around the work that you're doing. So um, I'm very interested in some of those early creative experiences. Could you share a bit of your early creative background and maybe how it laid some of the foundation for some of the work that you're doing now, some of the interests that you have now? Yeah, so uh, growing up, I always loved making art and it was really uh the women in my family my mom my grandmother my aunt who really encouraged me like they would like hang my stuff up on the refrigerator and um always compliment me and say you're gonna be an artist you're gonna be an artist and I was like I'm gonna be an artist you know so um so I claimed that pretty early on um I don't think I ever really wanted to do anything else um well that's not true but early on that was like the first thing I claimed, right? As far as my career trajectory. And um, I'm talking about career trajectory when I'm like five or four, six or something like that. Like, this is my path, you know? But um, yeah, so um, I ended up going to art school. Um, but I, I before I get to college, um, in high school, um, I really that's when I really fell in love with museums. Um, I went, I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut, and the school that I went to was really underfunded, uh, but we had some really amazing teachers. And um, I really wasn't, I tell people, I, I wasn't very interested in school growing up, but um, it really wasn't until high school that, um, I don't know, like I, I just grew into my confidence a little bit more. And um, it was really through the encouragement of my art teacher, my English teacher, um, and other mentors that kind of pushed me into getting into programs and enrichment programs and, you know, being like the school representative of this, that, and the third type of thing. So, um, and I loved it, you know. Um, my teacher, Miss Malley, shout out to Miss Malley. She was my high school art teacher, and I don't know how she got the funding for this. I think she paid for a lot of this herself, but um, she um, took us on these field trips and these one, this one art, this these art excursion field trips, right, throughout the state and throughout the um, tri-state area. And one of the field trips that I, I remember was going to um, the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And um, I was just totally blown away. I really thought it was a magical place. Like, you know, 
I didn't, I didn't, some of the things I didn't even know what I was seeing really, or I couldn't really articulate. Like that was the first time that I saw abstract art in that way. Um, so that kind of blew me away. And there was one artist that I saw that just kind of planted the seed for, I think for my work today and my work in museums, um, it was by the artist. Um, I saw the work of Leonardo Drew. And he is an installation conceptual artist. He actually graduated from my high school. So he was from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, and he actually lived for some time at the, in the, the housing projects in, in Bridgeport. So here I am, Bassick High School, and I'm seeing another Bassick High School alum at the Met, you know? So it just completely blew me away. And one of his pieces I saw um, it was an installation piece where he used cotton, wood, and it filled like the whole wall. And um, it was, I mean, the wood was like kind of decaying and the cotton was just sprawled throughout the piece. And he was really, he was telling the story of um, the African-American experience in the South. Uh and so I just thought, like, you know, it had, that experience kind of, like, crystallized so many different things, right? Like, what a museum could be and how they can present our history, right, in such a magical way. And how it can amplify and, like, uplift and showcase an amazing talent like Leonardo Drew, who looked like me, you know, he was black, just like he went to best high school, you know? Um, and so I just, I, I, yeah. So from that experience, I was like, okay, I want to work in museums. So I went to uh, Mason Grove School of the Arts um, at Rutgers University, which was a great experience because, you know, that's where you learn about the fundamentals of fine arts, visual arts and things like that. But they really didn't, showcase is when I went to school. Yeah. I don't know what their department is now, but when I went to school, I was one of the very few black folks in that department, um, undergrads. And they really didn't highlight a lot of black artists. Um, so I kind of felt a little isolated, right. but it was through my internships, like working at the studio museum. Um, when I moved to DC, I interned at the African art museum, um, that I really began my investment into, um, you know, learning about Black art, exploring Black art, and sharing Black art in my community arts education work, which is something that I was really invested in. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. No, no, no. <laughs> kind of you, went on this, like... No, I appreciate it because yeah. it's tapping on, like, different pieces of sort of these these introductory, like, questions and I think it definitely, definitely helps. So if I tap back on something that um, seems seems redundant, let me know. But definitely, I think we're we're getting a lot of it. And so, and thank you for for that because that that definitely helps. So when it comes to like your um, your work as an artist, right? Um, could you you know describe what your 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 work is? Um, and because I've read uh, paintings, portraits, mosaics, but what are the themes behind it? What are the 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 ideas behind the work? So my art is really tied to my day to day job, um, and that's kind of been my practice as an artist since I started working in museums. So everything that I learn in my museum work, 
right, in Black history is basically transferred into my studio practice. So there's a lot of synergy, right? Um, And that's the only way I know how to just keep balance. (laughs) And also, those are two things that I'm just naturally inspired by. Like, I'm inspired by the work that I do working in museums, and I'm inspired by, you know, the artwork that I do to um, celebrate Black history and Blackness. So, um, so some of the, so some of the themes that I, I enjoy working on is I love painting, um, um, African-American figures in history, but I also like painting just regular, regular (laughs) folks that I might see on the street and take pictures of, you know, family, friends, um, I just did a mosaic piece um, for Maryland Public Television of Harriet Tubman. It was a mosaic piece and it was, I think, one of the best pieces I've ever done. <laughs> um, I just completed a commission um, for the Riversdale House Museum of Adam Francis Plummer, who was uh, enslaved at the Riversdale um, estate. And uh, he owned, he wrote a diary that is currently being preserved at the Smithsonian Anacostia Museum. And he basically taught his family how to read and write. And that's how they were able to find each other after emancipation. So he's just has such a tremendous story. So being able to like learn about these folks and then create artwork to preserve, further preserve their legacy and history is, I feel like is a part of my purpose, my life purpose. So, yeah. Was was there a sort of like aha moment for you that's like, this is the sweet spot. This is sort of that intersection. And I asked that because when I think of doing this, um, been doing this for 14 years. Right. And, you know, that this particular podcast, but podcasting as a whole, but this podcast itself, it was I can I can point the timeline. It was, you know, a week after Trump said something goofy about Baltimore and I was like activated. It was just like, oh, now I'm here. You know, right. that. so that was sort of that that aha moment and seeing, you know, during that, that sort of nascent period that, um, you know, people wanted to share sort of their stories in, a, in an effort to kind of combat the sort of negative talk about Baltimore and these sort of like negative themes about Baltimore. And if we're being very honest, the negative themes about black folk in Baltimore. So for, for you in, in the work that you're doing, um, what was the aha moment of sort of the intersection of your, you have the, the artist identity and it's like bringing it to like sort of this arts administrative arts management, this museum component. Mm, my aha moment. Oh, Okay. I have I've had a series of aha moment, but my big aha moment. Um, it was when when I was getting my master's in arts management and um, I was working at Busboys and Poets. I've waited tables for years. Um, shout out to servers out there. OK, because <laughs> it's such a great ser- skill set to, to, to have. Um, so I was working at Busboys and Poets. And um, I approached the uh, we at the time at, in in school we were learning about um, creative alternative spaces like to showcase art and to have performances and things like that. And I was going to you know a good amount of shows and you know 
alternative, non-conformist type of spaces, right? Like in garages or people's homes or backyards or wherever. So um, I was like, I really want, mind you, I was relatively new to to D.C. I was living in D.C. at the time. And was I living with my aunt in Maryland? I think I was living in D.C. around that time. (laughs) So um, I was new to the area and I was like, I really want to do an art show, like to do like an art exhibit, just showcasing my work, right? So I approached Andy Shalal, who was the owner of Busboys. I was like, hey, uh, I want to do an art show. Can I have it in one of your spaces? Like, do you have an alternative space? I didn't know. I don't even think I asked him if I if I could do it in Busboys. I just said, do you have a space? Right. right? And so um, he was like, yeah, I'm building a new restaurant across the street um, called Eatonville. Eatonville had closed a little while ago, but at the time it was a pretty cool restaurant. So he was building it out, was nothing really in it. It was like this huge industrial space. And he was like, well, you could do our show there. And when I saw it, I was like, I don't got enough work for all this. Like, how am I going to build this up? How am I going to build this space up? Like, it's this is impossible. So I approached, at the time I was, you know, and again, a lot of artists and, you know, entrepreneurs and creatives can relate. I was just stringing hustles together just to get by, right? So I was uh, waiting tables, but I was also teaching art, like after school art programs. And the teacher that I was working with, she had lived in D.C. for a while and she was like an artist. Like, you know, her name um, is um, Alicia Cosnahan. Her alias is Decoy, but she's a street artist. So she does a lot. She did a lot of public art. So I approached her and I was like, hey, girl, like you want to do this show with me? And she was like, okay. So she saw the space and then she got her art collective involved, her her street art collective involved. Ab- the name was Abbas Cabas. Um, and they, we were like, let's just do a group show. So I was like, okay, cool. And she was like, let's paint on the walls. And I was like, okay, let's paint on the walls. Like, we're going to do a mural show. Great. And so I talked to Andy and he was like, well, what if you... Um, painted with the theme of Zora Neale Hurston. Now, in my mind, I'm like, brother, you're about to get some free art. You know what I mean? For your- <laughs> like, okay. But at the forefront, really, I was thinking, I want to have this diverse pool of artists, right? Black, white, Latinx, whoever, right? Learning about this Black woman, Zora Neale Hurston, and painting works to celebrate her. I'm, I'm on it. And let me tell you, it was a high that I'm still chasing today. (laughs) Like just the process of working with all types of artists and how they interpreted Zora's life and her work. And it was really in the conversations that was, you know, grew out of that process about this Black woman um was transformative so i knew that i was like okay i know that whatever i do i want to make sure that i am uh presenting celebrating black and sharing black history for people to be forever changed by it um and from that game was on thank you so that's 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 great. And then I definitely have a few thoughts that come out of that. I definitely have to share with you after we we wrap here. Um, yeah, it's, it's about connections. It's about community mm-hmm. and connections. And um, 
Yeah, so I, I I see that. Like as I listen to folks, I'm like, that's an idea. That's an idea. Keep going. Tell me more. <laughs> so talk about um your your work now um with uh Banneker Douglas, um with Maryland Commission on African American history and culture. Um what is your role with with both these um sort of organizations and um what are your, your key responsibilities? So I serve as the executive director of the, this is how I say my title, my role. I serve as the executive director for the Maryland Commission on African-American History and Culture. And we operate the Banneker-Douglas Museum, which is Maryland State Museum on African-American History and Culture, as well as we co-administer um, the with Maryland Historical Trust the African-American Heritage Preservation Grant, which is a $5 million, an annual $5 million capital grant program given to African-American museums and heritage sites throughout the state every year. Um, so my role is to, um, of course, operate the museum. I do a lot of fundraising, um, management of staff, staff recruitment. Um, I work with boards and um, um, our foundation um, to raise funds for the museum. Um, I do a lot of legislative work um, with partnering with um, our legislators on events, on programs, on getting advisement on bills pertaining to African-American history in Maryland. Um, and I get to work with the best commission on the planet. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. They are like I people, you know, I have colleagues and they're like, oh, my board, my board, you know, I got to work with all, the, all these people and different personalities. But I'm like, well, <laughs> sucks to be you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Right. Because they they challenge me in the best way. And they're all, you know, we have like lawyers, we have activists, artists, um, educators. So I just learned so much from them. And there's such a great pool of volunteers where they help support my staff, you know? Um, so it's, it's been really fantastic. Thank you. Um, so what are what are some of the 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 key goals and, and and priorities like in terms of maybe exhibits and maybe programming and and maybe initiatives that have come into play that um, are part of the sort of the the recent um, offerings and with mm -hmm. from your vantage point. Um, well, right now we are in the midst of uh, upgrading like a capital project for the museum. So. Um, we just completed phase one of doing some restoration to our historic wing of the museum, which was uh, once an AME um, African-American Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, and it was built in 1874. And right now it's where we host our temporary exhibitions and programs and lectures. And it's just a magical space. Frederick Douglass spoke there. Um, and it's, it's incredible. Um, but next year, well, when I say next year, I mean next fiscal year, starting in July, we're going to be completing the building upgrade projects with updating our permanent exhibit, Deep Roots Rising Waters, um, doing some really stellar programming um, around the um, um, 60th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. And um, I would say we're really prioritizing on um, and, and this goes with the, 
the rationale behind this capital campaign project. We're really trying to equip the museum to do um, high level um, elevated exhibitions, right? So we wanna make sure that the space is pristine, that we have the best lighting, the best setup um, to be a premier um, location for, for black art. Um, so we're really excited about that. Our current exhibition that we have now is entitled The Radical Voice of Blackness Speaks of Resistance and Joy, um, which features 18 Maryland-based artists. Um, and it's it's incredible. We have works by some folks you probably know, Devin Allen, um, Joyce Scott. Um, I'm sorry, Dr. Joyce J. Scott. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, put that in there. She'll, she'll let me out. Um, and, but she's just incredible. And um, we have um, Tawny Chapman, um, Wesley Clark, and a number of other uh, incredible contemporary artists that are right here in our state that many people don't even know are from Maryland. So um, yeah, it's exciting. And that definitely keys in on... Um... You know, one of the things that is uh, a big part of this this series, highlighting those folks that mm -hmm. often aren't getting their their sort of due and their credit of like, you know, that person was here. Yeah, but mm -hmm. I can't buy that work elsewhere. It's like, yeah, but they're from here and they're doing work here as well. If you mm -hmm. care about their work, explore, you know. Um, so 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 talk about uh, talk a bit more about um the radical voice of, of blackness speaks of resistance and joy. Um, talk a bit more about sort of the process of working with a guest curator and, and mm -hmm. artists that to bring this exhibit to life. Mm -hmm. um, so the guest curator is Martise Berdola and Martise Berdola is a gallerist. Um, she owns a gallery in Baltimore city city gallery Martise. And you've probably seen her, her work and a lot of artists that she represents in the Netflix movie, Really Love. Um, I, my work was also in that movie. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, I like it. I like it. <laughs> right. But no, but she is, she's just a phenomenal curator. And I um, asked her um, a little while ago if she would guest curate an ex exhibition at the museum. And she said, yes. So I got to fundraising and uh, and we made it happen. And, and it's been such a great journey um, and experience working with her because she is a an excellent curator. I mean, she she really, really is. Um, and so the the rationale was, okay, we want to do a show that um, really, you know, highlights, the national black history of 2023, which is black resistance. Mm -hmm. um, uh, every year, ASALA, the Association um, for the Study of African-American Life and History presents a black history theme this year's black resistance. We're like, we gotta do something on black resistance. <laughs> um, so a lot of the artists that are showcased in the show uh, Mertice represents or has had experience working with. Um, so she selected all of the artists and she even pulled some pieces from our own collection um, to be in the exhibition. Um, and we wanted to make it a multimedia show. This was at the cusp of our capital. Actually, I'm lying. We were doing capital repairs, um, installing a show um, doing all this work like at the same time. So it was a little crazy. It was, it was 
It was, was crazy. Like it. I'm not going to lie. And I was on my honeymoon. So that was even more crazy. Um, so I was getting calls in Ghana and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> how's lighting, you know? Um, so, um, but we got it done. It is a breathtaking exhibition. I mean, to have an exhibit in that space, in that historic space um, with it, you know, we have new pine wood flooring. We were able to salvage the wooden floors in the stage where um, 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 the historic wood around the stage. So that was really special to us. We did install new walls, new lighting, exhibit lighting, and it is a breathtaking architectural marvel. Um, and we're, and so to have the exhibit there is just, I'm over the moon, overjoyed by this opportunity. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I got uh, three more real questions for you. Mm-hmm. One I've just added. So, you know, because you were, you were doing a little too well, so I need to throw a little bit of a curveball in there. Um, in in terms of um, doing one thing well, right, from your vantage point, what, what is what is the one thing that is just like, of all things, just like everything is, you know, 9.5, but this is my 10. You know, what is that? that mm. What is that one thing that you do like exceptionally well? Oh, there's just so many things. Yeah, I mean, that's why I was kidding. <laughs> um, what's the one thing I do really well? I think I have, I think I have very good instinct. Like I, I think I have very good instinct on talent and I have good instinct on what's going to move the needle. So, no, that's, that's, that's really good. I think having sort of that, um, as, I, as I've been been playing with this a little bit recently, because, you know, I've had conversations with folks, uh, tell me about your work and all of this from mm-hmm. from my vantage point. I'm like, Hey, I'm usually asking that question and, mm-hmm. you know, in describing it and it's like, you know, I'm not a storyteller. I'm facilitating mm-hmm. people telling their story. I was like, I don't know if I have that that skill, and maybe I do, but it's still like I can do certain things in a way, and really being able to identify what those skills are, and I think you know enables you when I'm let's say working with a team or or working with a guest for sake of argument of like, okay, this person is chatty, so I can kind of scale back a little bit and be able to not step on them. It's kind of mm-hmm. know what you do well, you know. You're a good communicator. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I think that's, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So talk about um, the is this part, because I've always found this a little, little interesting, um, like being able to balance like how you may personally feel with kind of going through and reviewing and kind of, you know, delving back into you know, history and, you know, how history works. And it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to dive into this one. And mm-hmm. there are some museums and some exhibits and some work that, you know, I shy away from. And I'm like, this is, this is a little challenging. This is a little rough or what have you, especially when we're talking about issues around race and issues around race mm-hmm. specifically in America and what the black experience has been. Could you, you know, talk about that? Like how, you know, what's the hardest part of, for you personally when discussing those issues around race within your work? That is a great question, and I'm going to combine it with your first question around, like, what I do well. Um, so when I'm, what I meant by, oh, yeah, I know how to push the needle forward, um, what I really mean is um, I, I have a love, right, 
for supporting black organizations um, to kind of move the needle and for the next generation, right? Like I'm always thinking about, okay, my successor or, you know, the next round of staff, like, you know, how can I make this organization like the best place to work and where it's, you know, has plenty of resources to do incredible work. Um, So in moving the needle, one of the things that um, is important, an important part of that process, right, is sometimes we have to go in places that makes us feel uncomfortable, right? So, you know, invalid questions are, you know, are we scared to do this program based off of the white gaze? And if so, then we definitely got to do this program, right? Um, or, you know, are we um, hesitant to do this type of exhibition or, you know, or to partner with this organization because um, um, it's either too provocative or are we, are we operating from a fear of, you know, respectability and systems of white supremacy and all those things, right? So, um, I think my job is to kind of push us through that and to ask those questions when they need to be asked. Um, and um, to make sure that the work that we're doing is authentic, it's authentic to the Black experience and all of its diversity. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. You absolutely okay. did. And, and I, I, I love that. It's It's very important to be reflective and be you know, representative or in, in at least have that sort of intent. I I see so many different things that, that come up that say this is sort of this almost um what it was the word, uh almost uh, monolithic sort of this is what the black experience is and the ideology around it from the from the folks in those spots that, you know, espouse things like this is for the culture, but it seems like the culture only hits maybe a certain sector, what have you. It's a, almost a sort of elitist, rarefy thing. And it's like, but this is supposed to be for for, for everyone. And, and, and we, we're supposed to see ourselves in it. And I think one of the things you described so well early on was, you know, the um, Leonardo, right? And, and kind of seeing that sort of connectivity early on with maybe part of your story and seeing someone that looks like you and, and seeing them in, in the Met. It's like, wow, that's, that's really great work. And, you know, I've had that in the past where I've taken a few different projects on just to show like, you know, black kids in, in, in Baltimore, um, Hey, you could be in radio, you could be doing this and it doesn't have to be this sort of one note way of going about it. And, you know, sometimes people don't like that. And sometimes they're, is a certain agenda behind something that might be driving like sort of the respectability or you're a little too real, you're a little too black, a little too authentic. And I'm speaking of things that go down in the DMS as it were. And, you know, I still do it. I still just do it anyway. I know that's right. Yeah. Cause it's your purpose. It's your calling. Right. So you can't ignore that. No. And, you know, why, why be something that's, you know, I've already done the whole thing of you send the imposter, the, the, the whole, uh, the representative, that whole imposter thing that you do. And I'd rather just, just be me and find the people, um, you know, we talk about tribes and all of that stuff, but find the people that I'm supposed to be around and I'm supposed to be working with. And, you know, I think 
me doing this and doing this at the volume in which I'm doing it. And I think a lot of times when we find what our work is and we're doing it authentically and we're doing it from our heart and soul and just everything else be damned. That's, mm. that's, that's how you, that's how it works. Mm. So I got one last real question before I get into the rapid fire questions for you. Mm. And this almost kind of, it's almost like an arc here. This, this last question. Um, Cause I realized like, as I'm doing this sort of um, group of inter- interviews, and maybe it's been in this year, right, that I, I see changes happening, maybe seeing things with fresh eyes. I've been thinking of things through a lens of maybe cultural preservation, right? And I think as time passes, we treat stories, heritage, culturally different, culture, culture differently. It's like, oh, that's really what happened. We didn't call it that. And it's like, no, there are archives that say this is what this was. Why are you trying to rebrand a certain piece of history, especially if it's not, you know, your history, you know, certain communities? And there's almost this push to sanitize and cherry pick certain things like, when I think of like MLK, you know, there's, we have, we look at it in a certain way, you know, from a, from a mass media perspective or what have you. And I remember what, from a pop culture standpoint, and it was very insidious, I think back in um, maybe 2020 and right after, um, you know, George Floyd murder and everything else that came out of that, people seem to be a little bit more sensitive at least as far as saying that we were on the right side of history, being a little bit more sensitive, but it's like you did the terrible thing then, whether it be having blackface or having something racially insensitive in an episode of like Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. Let's just scrub it. Let's get rid of it. No, had to have a disclaimer. So I guess in, in, in this whole sort of stream of stream of consciousness here, can you speak to the importance of like preserving history, celebrating history, warts and all? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I feel like that could be a podcast in and of itself. Um, because, well, because there's so many sides to it, right? Um, and I was actually having a similar conversation with a friend of mine over the weekend because, you know, she had a, um, she just had a baby and um, she got, she was basically debating on whether or not she should get books by the author, I can't think of the author's name, um, who wrote Matilda or something like that because um, he had some, he used some inflammatory language in some of his books um, that the new publishers are looking to erase. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So now, you know, are we going to be looking at this author in like authentically, you know what I mean? Like who he was at that time of him writing the book. You know, and then, you know, like I I thought anyway, so I, I, I think that it's very important to preserve history, but it's also important that, um, groups that haven't been at the table (laughs) of institutions, um, to preserve that history, um, it's important that um, groups that haven't been recognized in the um, documentation and presentation of American history um, are at those tables or be damned, build their own tables <laughs> to right. preserve that history. Because it's, it depends on who is giving context mm-hmm. to what is actually being um, uh, preserved, right? Right. <laughs> 
Um, and I think about, like, I think about the, um, this um, debate over the Confederate monuments, like, oh, it's American history. It's American, you know, it's a part of our history. So we should never forget. And I'm like, well, okay, but they're still in the public domain, right? right? Like they're still being like monuments are supposed to be like idyllic, right? So what does that say? You know, Um, so I don't know the question of like, they should be removed or put into museums or I, I'm not sure, but from my standpoint, they definitely should be removed and replaced with um, black abolitionists or something um, celebrating um, black history and um, those that were instrumental in the anti-slavery movement. I think that I mean, because at the same time, it still speaks to that history. I am taking this question in a whole different direction. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Please forgive me. Well, I think, but I, um, yeah, I think it's good. So context. I think exactly, and it's a question of who is giving context. That's why black archivists are so important. Um, black museum administrators are so important um, because they haven't really been recognized, and definitely black museums. I mean, most black museums in this nation. Um, got its black museums in general, right? Throughout the nation, most of them um, opened in like the seventies, eighties. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's those are babies in comparison to like the Met or the Walters or you know the larger um, Eurocentric institutions that we're so used to. Um, so, um, and even African American. Um, um, scholarship, right? African American studies, that was just popularized, what, in the 20th century? 21st century? Right. So even that is um, um, a, a new, relatively a new field of study um, in the United States. So um, yeah, who gives it, who gives it context is, is incredibly important. Shout out to Carter G. Woodson. <laughs> Shout out indeed. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you. That's that's pretty much it for the real questions. And I got four rapid fire questions. Uh, if you can indulge me on these, they're, you know, short answers. Nothing, nothing, you know, overly thoughtful. Well, not, not overly thoughtful. Not Nothing you need to th- overthink about, I suppose. Uh, so I want to start off with this first one. This is the softball, I think. Um, what's your favorite snack? Oh, my favorite snack is because I have so many <laughs> um, Cheetos for sure. I mean, mm. I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> the hard ones. You know what I mean? I don't do the puffy ones. I don't do the puff stuff. Nah, wait, wait, I, don't do, stuff. I don't do all that. You know, <laughs> I need the crunchy type, ones. I need yeah. the type you can put in a food processor. Exactly. I, experience. Yeah. I, I try to I try to fake through it. I'll get like something that's not quite good for you, like white cheddar cheese its and I'll get like a handful of like unsalted almonds. So I'm like, yeah, it's less fat, right? No, actually it's more right. fat. <laughs> it's a balance. See, I didn't yeah. even think of anything healthy. That's how trifling I am. I do like fruit, but I'm like, mm, that's not a snack. That's a responsibility. <laughs> it's okay. Where's the canned uh pineapple at? <laughs> right, right, right. Um 
let's see, uh, in terms of your career, in terms of work, in terms of just how your, your approach to life at this stage, um, what has gotten you further, book smarts or street smarts? Oh, both. I, I, that sounds corny, right? But both. Both, seriously. Like, okay, um, when I got my master's in arts management, you know, you learn the fundamentals of fundraising, um, within an arts nonprofit or a cultural institution, you know, you learn marketing, you know, you learn the fundamentals, right? Um, but when I got started <laughs> working in museums, um, at first, early on in my career, I was like, this isn't in the book. You know, <laughs> like, this isn't best practice. And it's like, no, like, it's about building relationships. It's about learning the culture of that organization. Um, that that is important, right? Um, yeah, it's it's about connecting and and um and not to sound hokey, but it is. It's about building relationships, like building relationships with your staff and finding like you know um, people's communication styles because everyone's communication style isn't your own. You know what I mean? Um, and you don't, I don't have all the answers. That's another thing. Like I don't have to show up to a space with all the answers, you know? Um, so I don't know if that's book smarts or street smarts. I don't know. But I think that, um, um, just being real and, authentic and honest is has led me well i i think i think my answer is very similar to that where i, I think it's having enough of the sort of technical some of the 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 the, the book smarts component i suppose and mm-hmm. in practice you know using those street smarts and how to navigate how to strategically use them when needed um and you know i i rely on this for the longest time i didn't do any networking any outreach any things like that especially when it comes to like booking a guest, I didn't really need to do any of that. And, you know, just learning how to engage into a conversation with someone and, you know, kind of get to yes. I'm like, Oh, now I'm actually using some of this stuff, but it's, they almost one hand washes the other. They're working in, in tandem. Um, the, the street smarts and the book smarts. So definitely I think there's a strategic component, but you got to have that foundation that's, that's there of where'd you learn this? You know, you got to have mm-hmm. peace. Uh, so let's see, um, got, got the quick art question. Um, what are two colors that two to three colors that are always like on your palette? Like, like what colors do you, what two to three colors? Orange and blue. Orange and blue. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Always. You know, I went to Morgan, so, you know, I'm just saying. Right, right. I mean, I love contrast. Shout out to Morgan. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I love contrast, and I just put, that is always on my palette. Um, The cool and the hot, for sure. This is the last one because I always like to like to check in um, with folks. Uh, you know, we've we've established a bit of a connection here in this 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 chat, and um, you know, we're all super busy, and sometimes self care isn't well cared for. Uh, what is a self care practice that you always make time for? Um, that I always make time for. Really, I I always make time for my family. 
Like, I I always make time to, to call. I mean, I love my, my family, including my husband, but I see my husband every day. You know what I mean? So I guess that is a part of self-care because, you know, he's like the best person on the planet and I love hanging out with him and he's just perfect and amazing. Um, and in addition to that, I you know, I always make time to, to call my sister, my brother, my brothers. I have two brothers, my goddaughter, my niece. Um, they, I mean, if I need a shot of B12, I'll, I'll just call them. My mom, my aunt, now I have to list people because if they listen to this podcast, I'm like, you didn't mention me. So my grandmother, (laughs) like (laughs) all of them, you know, my family, you know, um, I I always check in with them. Yeah. And actually we're celebrating my grandmother's 90th birthday this weekend. We're going to, um, do an Airbnb in Lynchburg and, um, it'll be great. It's great. So it's almost like you were uh, describing, like, when you win an award, it's like, let me go through my list. I got this person. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. Because I will get phone calls. You'd be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> well, new listeners. Uh, so, mm-hmm. one, I want to I want to thank you for for being on this podcast and taking the time yet again. And, um, yeah, just, just sharing and, and being an open book here. And secondly, um, I want to invite and encourage you to share with the listeners where they can check out, you know, more of your work, more of um, the Maryland Commission on African-American Heritage and Culture and all of that good stuff. Um, the floor is yours. Yes, um, you can check out my work um, um, at ChanelCompton.net. I'm also currently um, being exhibited in a group exhibition called The Cost of Living um, the cost of li- I said living, the cost of living, um, which is being curated by an amazing artist and curator, uh, Nikki Brooks. Um, it the opening night is March third at Dupont Underground in Washington D.C. Um, so really excited about that exhibition. I'll be um, unveiling a piece that I did um, of Angela Davis. And um, it's entitled Abolish Prisons. So, um, yeah. And, of course, you can follow me on social media at Chanel Nicole Johnson and um, more to come. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Chanel Compton Johnson from the um, Maryland Commission on African American History and Culture, as well as the Banneker Douglas Museum. There, it's a little nesting going on there. And I'm Rob Lee, saying that there's art, heritage, history, culture in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.